0: Hello, my name is Sam.
1: And my name is Chern. It's Saturday, the 31st of October, 2020. And with three days until the US presidential election, this is Ballot to Talk About.
0: Hey Chern, how's everything going?
1: Very good, thanks. What about yourself?
0: Yes, very good. We're all getting a bit excited about next week. I can't believe it's next week.
1: And considering how long it's been, like, this this year, I can't quite believe we finally got there.
0: Felt like it was never going to come, did it?
1: No, it, it certainly hasn't.
0: So today, we're going to be talking about next week's US elections, reflecting on the campaigns, making some final predictions, and talking about what the balance of power may look like this time next week. So how are you feeling about it?
1: Well, I think, to be honest, this is a culmination of... They've been running, essentially, since the the end of the midterms, haven't they? And both excited and nervous. Now, I should explain to listeners that we will both be, I suspect, watching the results, but across two very distinct time zones. So, Sam, Sam I need the Red Bull to keep you awake, and (laughs) I might need the tea to make sure that I'm still awake. (laughs) Um, Isn't it?
0: Yeah, and we'll be covering it on our Twitter channel. So if you aren't following us yet, please go and have a look and check that out. So, well, first, what are some of the main non-U.S. news stories that have been happening in the world of elections this week?
1: Well, surprisingly, actually, despite the fact that we have the U.S. presidential election, there has been a lot of regional elections taking place in Canada and one in Australia today. So as we flagged last week in British Columbia... Uh, Premier John Van Hogan was running for a second term, and the result of the election last Sunday saw him transform his minority government to a majority government. He has won, at this moment, 55 seats in the 87-seat chamber, which is a gain of 14 seats. Um, This is historic in the sense that it's the first um, New Democrat Party from which John Van Hogan hails from its first majority government since 1996, which is the year I was born. So it's clearly a conservative-leaning state, but opting for the centre-left New Democrats. Now, at the moment, it's 55 seats, but it has the potential to be slightly better because in a few of the tight races, um, that's obviously in COVID, and this is a theme throughout many elections across the world and in the US, is that there's been an increase in mail-in voting And the thought is is that that mail-in voting will tend to favour the incumbent. So in this case, John Van Hogan. So he might get a slightly bigger majority um, as a result. But we'll wait to see over the next week or so to see where the final numbers lie. You mentioned
0: last week that there might be some rumblings on the national level about the possibility of an election. Have we heard any more on that?
1: Well, that's very interesting because on the same day as Tuesday, the Saskatchewan election as it was held, Two federal by elections were held, and the Liberals actually did not do very well in those uh, federal by elections in York Centre and Toronto Centre. So, I'm not sure whether they might decide to go because, obviously, by elections, as we know, can be kind of weird. They can throw up all kinds of Mm -hmm. interesting facts and interesting uh, conundrums. And you know, you lose this sitting member kind of popularity as well. So, we do not know. I mean, York Centre, which is the traditional race between the liberals and the conservatives there was a five percent swing against the government and canada is not the united kingdom or the us seem to handle it relatively well so it'll be very interesting to see whether he will be tempted based on the british columbia and saskatchewan election where the saskatchewan party won another majority government with over 60 percent of the vote and which is virtually unchanged since the last election So although these two state governments have done well, I wonder whether these not-so-good results in York Centre and Toronto Centre might cause Justin Trudeau to just hit pause a little bit and decide whether it's actually worthwhile. Because, you know, there's always a risk, but he's trying to get a majority. I'm not sure whether Canadians might think, oh, why are we forcing it to go when COVID cases are beginning to spike again? And he ends up in a minority. He might just see what's the point, really. Mm -hmm. And today as well, we've been covering this on our Twitter feed as well, was the Queensland election, where Anastasia Palaszczuk, Labour Party leader, has been returned. She's been in power since 2015. According to the ABC computer, she the Labour Party has currently 48 seats, which matches the number of seats in which they held in the last election. And the centre-right Liberal National Party have conceded defeat. So just some interesting statistics uh, regarding Queensland. Anastasia Palaszczuk has become the first woman to win three consecutive elections and if she serves up her full term, which will last in 2024, she will become Queensland's fourth longest-serving premier. So she's really created history here in a number of ways and in a slightly conservative-leaning state, a bit like British Columbia, it is very interesting that both center-left governments have been able to be returned on strong handling of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So as we saw in New Zealand two weeks ago, it's clear that if you handle COVID well, your government will be likely returned. And on the New Zealand front, they released a referendum results, preliminary, and we're we'll going to talk more about them in next week's podcast. But the end-of-life choice bill, the euthanasia bill has almost certainly passed. It's got 65% yes. The legalization of cannabis is interesting because that currently is leading no 53% to 47 And there is a thought that with um, the special votes, which tend to be more overseas leaning and skews younger voters as well because they, are not, they didn't vote in the electorate in which they were currently living in, mm-hmm. might skew the results or make it close. So we won't do, I think we'll talk about that next week when the final results come out. But Sam, I, something interesting came out this weekend as well is that the Greens have accepted a, co- a deal with Labour. And basically, it's a kind of few policy wins and both its co-leaders, James Shaw and Marama Davidson, will become ministers outside cabinet. James Shaw will be climate change minister and Marama Davidson will be minister for the prevention of family and sexual violence. So I was just wondering, you know, Labour, as we know, won a historic majority government in MMP a few weeks ago. Why on earth would they want to bring the Greens in if they have no need for.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I can see some perks of doing this from Jacinda Ardern's perspective and the Labour Party's perspective, which is that you add a bit of a buffer to your majority. So when you're trying to get legislation through, you have a few extra votes to potentially rely on if there's any rebels within your own party, for example. But I also think it works well ideologically and politically because... If you work with the Green Party, it's basically putting on the record that you are going to pay quite close attention to climate change politics. And that might work well in the long run for the Labour Party to be able to take credit for initiatives that they work on in cooperation with the Green Party.
1: I think one one characteristic to consider is that, you know, MMP, as we discussed a few weeks ago, it's notoriously difficult for governments to get majority government Mm -hmm. and I think there's a feeling in particular once COVID has died down by the next election comes around Labour will be needing coalition partners again Mm -hmm. and I wonder whether keeping the Greens closed is an idea in which to tone down criticism from one end so not only we have national and act attacking you from the right but bringing the Greens in closer means that they are more likely to continue not only continue the partnership in three years time but also to ensure that you don't have criticism from the left flank as well, which I think, considering a lot of the Greens tend to attract a lot of young support as well, it can kind of keep a lot of young people in the Labour column. I should also say that I think your idea of gaining extra votes is actually correct, because I think if I remember seeing is that, even if the the Greens are duty-bound to abstain, at the very least, or vote with the government in a no-confidence motion brought about by the national or ACT parties, and it will vote for the budget. Um, So, I think, and there are arrangements to do with, let's say, their climate change bills or whatever brought onto the legislature, I think the Greens are duty-bound to vote with them. And as, as, as you know, environmentalism is obviously a Green strength and a potential Labour weakness if Labour is trying to hug that centre to the ground, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and I think it's especially important to reiterate that whilst Jacinda Ardern's Labour Party did gain a historic majority government in the grand scheme of New Zealand politics, in the grand scheme of political science generally, it's it's a very narrow majority. So having mm-hmm. Having those extra votes, I think, will serve them well going forward.
1: I, I, I think that's I absolutely correct on that one. And we'd just like to note that the New Zealand cabinet, so the full cabinet, will be announced on Monday, and we'll cover that in next week's chat. And the Greens and Labour will be signing their cooperation deal tomorrow. It's very nice because a new cabinet is about to be happening in the US, isn't it, with either a re-elected Trump presidency or um, Biden becoming president for the first time. What has been happening over the US, Sam?
0: Yeah, so we're entering into the last three days, can you believe it, of the US elections. Last week we also had the official confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court um, with a 52-48 vote, with only one Republican, Susan Collins, voting against. Interestingly, it was the first Supreme Court justice confirmed without any bipartisan support since 1869 which was Edward Stanton. I found out when digging that Edward Stanton, funnily enough, died four days after he was confirmed, so he never got <laughs> to actually sit and preside over any case on the Supreme Court, but he was confirmed without any bipartisan support. Do you think that Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation is going to have any bearing on the election? Do you, what do you think about the timing of this?
1: Well, first of all, it's been four days since she was uh, sworn in as the uh, U.S. Supreme Court judge, so she's already done that already. Um, right now, in the U.S. politics, it's so polarized at the moment that I don't think anything will surprise people. And I think they had this four years ago where the Supreme Court was a live issue. Mm-hmm. I generally don't think that it would change the calculus already, particularly when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and in September, people were already beginning to vote then and and when she was confirmed, I how, what 80 over a million Americans have already voted already? The thing I'm curious about is why did the Republicans confirm Amy Coney Barrett now before the election? Rather than, you could argue that when Brett Kavanaugh was having his confirmation two years ago, that really did tip the balance in some of these red-leaning states and probably what gay people like Mike Braun over the line in places like Indiana, and maybe even Rick Scott in Florida. So given that it can give a boost, particularly to the Conservatives, in this idea that they can finally get a solid working majority in the Supreme Court, do you think the Republicans missed the trick in trying to um, nominate, in getting the vote of Amy Comey Barrett before the election?
0: So firstly, I completely agree with everything you said about the impact on the election, because I think a lot of the, because of high partisanship, a lot of the opinions on the Supreme Court have been baked in for quite some time. And if they weren't baked in with the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation process, they were baked in from the moment that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death was announced. And I don't think there's been much shift on people's opinions since then. In terms of the speed, I think there's quite a lot of things at play. Predominantly, I think it's that the Republicans were very determined to get another Supreme Court justice confirmed, because in all reality, Amy Coney Barrett could realistically be serving on this court for the next three decades, if not four. So this is is a much longer term conservative influence that the Republicans can have. And I think if they'd have left it to the lame duck periods, it would have looked even more illegitimate than the democrats perceive it to be being before the election so really i think they were left with two options and i think from a democratic perspective it was almost factored in quite swiftly after finding out that ruth bader ginsburg had passed away that the republicans were going to they were going to fill this seat whatever happened so allowing them to do it before the election or allowing them to do it in the lame duck period they were going to appoint Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, and there was very little the Democrats could do t- to stop that.
1: I agree with your analysis there. And I also think what's very interesting as well is that, you know, if you look at the senators who are up for re-election in, or in uh, relative to their partisanship in the States, Doug Jones is trying to run for re-election Alabama, Ruby Red, as anything else. He voted against the nomination, mm-hmm. and Cory Gardner, running in quite blue Colorado, uh, voted in favour of the nomination and in both cases going with their party rather than how the state would have necessary voters so I thought that was quite interesting yeah and Joe Manchin as well you know because he voted for Brett Kavanaugh two years ago absolutely um, but he, he voted against Amy Comey Barrett this year do you think it would help Susan Collins in Maine
0: I don't think so what one thing I've been surprised at is just the how low salience this Supreme Court battle has had in the grand scheme of the election I, it's just surprised me time and time and again that throughout the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, throughout the Senate confirmation vote, and even the, the ascension itself last week, that just how low salience this has been in terms of the election. So, and with, with it having such low salience and with Susan Collins' vote to vote not to confirm, not really having much media attention at all, I I just can't see how this has much of a bearing on her performance, and I think a lot of mainers were so angry with her vote on Brett Kavanaugh. Even this does not make up for it.
1: Well, I think it's interesting is that I think with Cory Gardner and Doug Jones' case is I think they don't think they're going to be reelected, um. So therefore, they can more likely go according to natural tendencies. Whereas I think Susan Collins has a chance, or she believes she yeah. has a chance at being reelected, and I think that cannot. The underestimated is why she voted no Because like you said, two years ago She was not facing election That's a key difference between now and two years ago But yes, I do agree that that was a catalyst Of when a big democratic push was made To try and oust Susan Collins with Maine Because don't forget, the year before Brett Kavanaugh's vote, she was one of the three Republicans That gave the votes That ensured that Obamacare And the the Affordable Care Act survived So she was seen as quite In the good books by the Democrats Until the Kavanaugh vote, wasn't she? Yeah
0: Yeah, and I'm sure we'll be talking about the developments in the Supreme Court in future podcasts going into next year. So, what else has been happening this week? It's been the final big week of campaigning for both the Trump team and the Biden team. I thought it was interesting to look at where those campaigns were this week. It's always discussed whether Hillary Clinton made mistakes not going to the Midwest in the last few weeks of the campaign in 2016. And for that reason, I think it's extra interesting to look at where the campaigns did go this time, because I don't think they'll be making similar mistakes again. I thought it was interesting that Biden spent this week in Georgia, Iowa and Florida and sent his running mate Kamala Harris to Texas yesterday for a rally with Julian Castro and Beto O'Rourke. And Trump's been in Florida, Nevada, Michigan. So I think it's very much looking like Trump is on the defensive, maybe the attack a little bit in Nevada, but Biden's very much on the attack.
1: Definitely. And I would also like to point out that Harris was sent to Texas yesterday, uh, and exactly what we talked about in our podcast last week to the counties along the US Mexico border, where, in contrast to a lot of where Travis County is, there's been not the explosion of early day voting as compared. To some of the other parts in Texas. So that was very much a weak spot within that Democratic coalition And a lot of the, lot of the rally was
0: conducted in Spanish, if I remember. I think it was a specifically targeted at Latino voters.
1: Absolutely. And I wonder whether the Democrat tactics are a bit... Um, were not very well suited in this COVID period. Because I suspect you need a lot of energy and door-to-door knocking to get the Hispanic voters to go to the polls. So I wonder whether their tactics as certainly compared to Republicans or Dialing back this door-to-door knocking and you know traditional fieldwork campaign will actually cost the Democrats some votes. Which okay, at this election it might not look as if Texas is you know the really at the forefront of that will decide the election. But certainly in Florida, where the figures out or some of the uh, the early voting figures are a little bit concerning from the Democratic perspective. So I've got here some statistics where. In Miami-Dade County, which is the biggest county there, the Republicans are actually leading on the early vote there. And we do not know whether actually those registered Republicans actually will vote Republican. But in a highly polarized environment, you would assume that over 90% has done. Mm -hmm. And it's not a small lead either. It's a seven-point lead as of today. Therefore, the Democrats need to run out the result in... Broward, Miami-Dade and the big urban areas. So I wonder whether you share my concern where if you see the Republicans leading in Miami-Dade counties early voting, would you be concerned if you were a Democratic operative? Potentially.
0: I think it's one of those situations which in usual cycles we'd be saying don't read too much into the early voting statistics. But in this election where so many people are voting early such a high percentage i mean we'll be talking about this later because i did a bit of data mining last night when so many people have been voting early the potential for you to turn it around on election day reduces so if you're running behind in a county that has quite a high proportion of votes for the state it is a concern but i think for the biden campaign florida would be great to wrap it up because as we discussed last week Florida declares quite early. So if you can win Florida, the chances of you being able to call it on election night are much higher. But in the grand scheme of the electoral map, it's not absolutely vital. I mean, one question I wanted to ask you was there was a lot of controversy this week about Biden's decision to go to Georgia. What do you make of that?
1: Well, I'd like to point out that today he's in Pennsylvania, which is one of the states that everyone is keeping an eye on. It's very interesting, like I said, where they send their candidates into. And Georgia is a state which I think, and you called it last week, that has recently come very much into play. Suddenly, on the Senate side, a recent poll put John Oslo at 49%, which a little bit more, and he will get over the 50% threshold. And suddenly Raphael Warner looks very much certain to get first place. And it looks like a fight between Doug Collins um, for second. So I wonder whether Georgia is also because on the Senate side, the Biden is trying to help push some of these Democratic candidates over the line. Mm-hmm. And even if he might not be successful in Georgia, at least force the Republicans to spend money there rather than in more, win- more 50-50 states like Iowa and North Carolina, which will probably supply the 50 and 51st seats for the Democrats, isn't it? So not only that's a Senate thing, but it's also a kind of a reach thing to ensure that they send on the presidential level as well. I think as well, we have to consider that Georgia is a state where, unlike Texas, is a lot cheaper to get over the line rather than Texas, which covers many media markets and is v- and just vast in size. Whereas Georgia is a little bit smaller. Okay, and 16 electoral votes is also quite a lot as well, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. Georgia could absolutely make up for not winning one of the three Midwest states that Hillary Clinton missed out on in 2016. So if you are having problems in Pennsylvania, as I'm sure we'll come to talk about, winning Georgia instead would still get you over the line. So that's the reason I thought maybe the criticism about Biden's decision to go there was ill-founded, because it is looking competitive, and 16 electoral votes is nothing to scoff at. And particularly, the two Senate seats could be vitally important in terms of the balance of power. Now, I know both of them, as we'll probably come to discuss, may not be called next week because they both go to runoffs if no candidate achieves fifty percent. But those two seats could be incredibly important. And if you can get a lot of momentum going in Georgia, you could be looking at picking up two extra Senate seats come January, as well as the electoral votes next week.
1: I will put a caveat as well and I think we discussed this last week as well, that if Biden becomes president before the runoff, it's highly unlikely that they will pick up certainly one of the Senate seat, which is almost certain to go for a runoff, also, also, I suspect would be very unlikely if there is a president Biden.
0: Why do you think Biden has this lead, and why do you think it's been relatively stable throughout this cycle?
1: I will point out that this lead has been basically since the first Trump-Biden matchups were made in 2017. Nothing much has really changed. I think Trump's handling and something dismissive of coronavirus has certainly swung a few, bo- a few percentage points over from the Trump to Biden column. And it's interesting to note that one of the states in which has moved quite significantly to the left and what we certainly expected from the start is Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And Wisconsin is suffering from quite a bad outbreak of coronavirus as well. And I suspect in a state in which that has a higher coronavirus outbreak, which will ensure that it's more in the news, that will reflect unfavorably on the president. It's kind of free advertising for Biden, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and COVID-19's prevalence in the US is only growing into this final week. I mean, yesterday, they set the world record for number of new recorded cases per day at over 100,000. So the prevalence of COVID is increasing just at a time when I think the president could afford for it not to be, because it's an issue that he doesn't particularly have very good poll numbers on, to, to say the least.
1: The one thing that has been striking to me is the fact that if you look at the white versus non-white approval rating, is that we all remember the 2012 post-mortem election where Mitt Romney lost. And there was a lot of emphasis on the fact that he lost in a, not a, a very badly because of the uh, non-white vo- voting for Barack Obama. And so, therefore, remember if you remember the early twenty thirteen, Republicans talking about immigration reform, making Dreamers more easier path to getting legal citizenship. How times have changed. Do you think it's slightly interesting that seven years on from that tour, that Donald Trump, who has avouched largely the completely opposite message from the messages the Republicans were putting on seven years ago, seems to be doing better in terms of getting non-white support?
0: I think a lot of it comes from latino support because biden's numbers there don't seem much different to hillary clinton's despite the fact that his national lead is such so much greater the discrepancy between biden and clinton's performance in latin americans is pretty unchanged which i find and quite in remarkable. Fact, a few points lower as well yeah, in fact, yeah. less Um, So I think a lot of it comes from that. And with that being a subset of the American population that's growing at such a significant rate, that could explain it a lot. Do you have any thoughts?
1: I think it's also very clear at this stage, although we talk about Hispanics in general, Hispanics is a very diverse coalition of countries, isn't it? So I think in places like Arizona and Texas, the Hispanics there are actually tend to be more Mexican and obviously Trump's history of very racist language towards Mexico calling them rapists and all will do him harm. But as we discussed last week, Florida is a lot harder because Hispanics there tend to be Cuban and a lot of them left Cuba to escape communism and so therefore tend to be quite right-leaning as a result. So I think when we talk about Hispanics in general, we have to be very careful about whether it's not a catch-all term really there are many distinct groups no
0: and i think this applies more widely to the discussion of race in elections and lumping together certain groups of voters but i think what's generally interesting is that for someone who's widely considered the most racist contemporary president to be performing better With ethnic minorities than Mitt Romney did in 2012 is just startling.
1: And I think that's another aspect as well, particularly for Hispanics and Blacks as well, is that economically they are not as well off as compared to the whites. And as we know, COVID 19 has had a disproportionate impact on poor people because of the fact that they are less likely to hold jobs that are able to more safely work from home. So I wonder whether, therefore, his message of the economy and keeping the economy open and going again and Him showing these amazing economic numbers, which is what you expect coming out the other side of a V, is actually helping him with these non-white voters too, and therefore allowing him to get better poll ratings because they care more about the economy because their jobs need a more functioning economy. Do you think so?
0: Quite possibly. But I think the issue that will be most on people's minds when they choose to vote next week or whether they've already voted, is absolutely COVID-19. Even in an age of high partisanship, I think if there is any issue that voters are going to be talking about in exit polls or in interviews, it will be that. And I'll be looking for that in the exit poll numbers that come out in the early hours of next Tuesday to see if that is the case, because it certainly seems like that's what people are going to be talking about.
1: I think as well though that coronavirus itself is handling. We might all think the U.S. is doing badly, but you know the conservatives themselves. If you look at their messaging, they're calling it the China virus, blaming on China, you know, blaming this idea of civil liberties being eroded by government as well. So there. Are, so even though I saw coronavirus handling polls, and you put Biden hit forty nine to forty one, which is roughly the same margin he has in the national lead yeah. as well. So not necessarily from a health front as well. There's also the economic front, yeah. and that's where the conservatives are really pushing. So not so for international viewers, don't just think that, oh, because COVID is the number one issue, that it should therefore be a landslide victory to the Democrats. It might not necessarily be because of the fact that coronavirus is still such a partisan issue across both sides of Absolutely. the aisle. Absolutely. I mean, the it.
0: Republicans still maintain, particularly Trump himself, maintains that... The way he dealt with the pandemic in the early stages made it much better than it could have been. He always goes back to the point that he closed the borders to China and he is arguing that he is the person who can best support economic recovery. So it's, it's, a, it's an issue that applies to both sides. But what I was talking about was just the prevalence of that as where people's votes are coming from.
1: So next tuesday is fast approaching there's three days left what do you think the parties need to do between now and next tuesday
0: well i'm not sure there's much left for them to do and one of the reasons is early voting the early voting numbers are wild they are very very high and obviously we were expecting this because the election's taking place in a pandemic a lot of people are being encouraged to vote early vote by mail But even still, I mean, I did some digging last night and I found out that 32 out of 50 of the states, more than 50 percent of the 2016 electorate have already cast their ballots. 14 of those 32 have more than 75 percent and two of them, Texas and Hawaii, have over 100 percent. They've already exceeded their 2016 electorate. Now, I know Hawaii has an all in election, so it works a bit differently. But still, I think those numbers are immensely high.
1: Montana is in the 90s as well, and they yeah. might surpass it in the next few days. Now, Montana on the presidential level will go for Trump. But as we discussed in a past podcast, the Senate race is looking very 50-50. Mm-hmm. So does this a high turnout, you think, help Steve Bullock, the Democratic candidate?
0: Quite possibly. I mean, in a lot of recent polls... Steve Bullock has been narrowly trailing the incumbent Senator Danes, And I think that will probably carry through to election day. But I know that Democrats are trying to read into these numbers, particularly in Texas. And I think the same applies to Montana. The turnout is much higher than their internal numbers were expecting. So I think they're wondering just what's going on. I know a lot of polling experts have been discussing that the way they based their polling on expected turnout is proving to not be entirely correct in terms of the raw numbers. They don't particularly know which demographics or which political leanings are voting more, but there's certainly going to be more voters. So the chance for some marginal polling error is definitely there.
1: I would also like to point out regarding to early voting is that I remember 2016, where the Democrats built a very formidable lead in Florida on a base of early voting. Now, once again, the reason why we keep talking about Florida is that it publishes data on if you're a registered democrat how many registered democrats or how many registered republicans vote but and again we had the caveat that not all democrat registered democrats vote democrat particularly more than so than registered republicans vote republican because a lot in the panhandle side a lot of ancestral democrats keep the democratic label but now virtually vote Republican on the presidential level And I remember four years ago, Pinellas County, which is just outside Tampa, which is along the I-4, which is the middle battleground of the state, a lot of Democrats on the day of the election were sounding alarms because of the fact they realized they cannibalized the vote pool who would have voted on Election Day by getting them to vote early. Mm -hmm. There was very few of their voters on Election Day relative to the Republicans. And that was one reason in which they began to think that, "Uh uh-oh, this is not working very well in Florida, and it was. and this is a, this is a bellwether county which Trump narrowly won by about one percent, despite the fact that early voting showed the Democrats far ahead. So, I wonder now is how much do you think it's, and the fear for both sides is that are you cannibalizing, particularly the Democrats, your actual the people who would have probably voted on the day by getting them to vote early.
0: I think it's interesting to discuss, uh, particularly Florida's proving to be. In so many ways, the enigma in this whole cycle in terms of the early voting numbers coming out, in terms of the polling numbers, in terms of the candidates' activity there, Florida's definitely proving to be a special case. What do you make of the early voting numbers coming out of Texas in particular? What's your reaction? My
1: my final point regarding Texas is, although I did put this caveat, I applied to Florida, I think the Texas case, I agree with you, is very different. The counties that reached one of the few counties that reached the hundred over one hundred percent early on was Travis County. Now, Travis County is home to Austin, which is a very liberal urban city. If that county has over one hundred percent, I'm pretty sure that it's more Democrats voting, mm-hmm. and that's why they probably send Kamala Harris to the border as well because. They probably figured that there's enough enthusiasm within the urban and suburban counties to vote Democrat. And that was probably a weakness, isn't it? And I agree. I think Florida is definitely the enigma. And I think to a certain extent, North Carolina as well is an enigma as well. Because I think if we saw a slight shift, and although it's been quite stable, there's been a slight shift in recent months. Florida and North Carolina have persistently not shifted in the Democrat's direction certainly as compared to Georgia and Texas, and to a lesser extent, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania as well. Yeah, I mean, we all remember 2018. and This is the warning for Democrats because leading to election day, it had Andrew Gillum and Senator Bill Nelson, and Andrew Gillum was leading by three points. So the Democrats have underperformed polls, but the flip side is that they have tend to overperform polls in Texas. So we will see with bated breath, really, what happens in the next three days.
0: Absolutely. And I've just seen an update, actually, that Texas has released their latest day worth of early voting. And they're nearly now at a million more votes than were cast in Texas in 2016, which is quite phenomenal, really.
1: You and I both love interesting statistics. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to pose to you a question. So which state is the first state in which we're going to hear results from on election night?
0: In terms of the complete results, or just or when
1: polls close?
0: Well, Florida counts its uh, counts its early votes and mail-in ballots before election day, so we should get a, a huge chunk of votes from Florida within minutes of of the polls closing, if I'm
1: correct. But Florida closes at seven o'clock. Ah, There's That's a, true. This is that, true. So which is one hour later than two states? Do you remember which states close at six o'clock? I don't. Well, actually, the, the, the interesting thing is that we had to go to Indiana in the Midwest, actually. Oh, wow. Most of Indiana will close at 6 o'clock and Eastern Kentucky will also close at 6 o'clock. And I think that's because Kentucky, Indiana, one half of the state is an hour behind. So the, although it's 6 o'clock, they all close. It's 6 o'clock, a central time zone, rather than 6 o'clock. Of course. Uh, it will be an hour later. So actually, we're going to get results from Indiana, Kentucky first. Now, unfortunately, they're not the most representative or battleground states in both of them, is it? They're both greater real, Republican. But I think what would be very interesting is the fact that, uh, that is Joe Biden doing better, particularly in the in the Midwest as well. If he's able to improve on Hillary Clinton's numbers, that would be early indicator of what could potentially come in Pennsylvania and Michigan where certainly the Biden campaign has spent more resources in it. And don't forget, Indiana has Virgo County, which is the Bellwether Bellwether County in the entire the US. I think since the 1860s, they've only voted for the wrong president twice, which is a remarkable statistic. So it is one of those counties which thankfully closed early, which based on past form, we should know who the US president is.
0: So I think one question I wanted to ask in last week's podcast, but I think it's important to ask it this week as well is we spend a lot of time talking about the paths for a Biden victory and which states are on the Democrats radar but which states do you think are on Trump's radar which which Clinton states do you think are on Trump's radar they might not be realistic pickups at this stage I don't know maybe you'll disagree but what do you what do you think is the most likely state that was a Clinton state to become a Trump state
1: well I think it was very noticeable that in his last few days that he has bothered to go to Minnesota. Now, Minnesota is, of course, one of the... is actually has the longest streak of voting Democrats since the 1970-1976 election. However, Hillary Clinton significantly underperformed Barack Obama in 2016. She won it by about 1.5%. And it was noticeable that Trump decided to go there. Now, I think that is probably the most likely Clinton to Trump state. But the problem... In Minnesota is the fact that Saint Paul and Minneapolis the twin cities carry a significant population Mm -hmm. and therefore it would be hard to overcome that population running up numbers throughout the rest of the state I'm not saying necessarily potentially a more palatable republican candidate for the suburbs that it could turn red it could potentially do but I don't think that it is particularly with a democrat leading with seven to eight points compared to 2% for Hillary Clinton, that it would be actually flipping from blue to red. I do think as well that early on, Brett Pascal, who was Donald Trump's former campaign manager, talked about New Mexico and Oregon as potential targets. I think that was totally a f- uh, fantasy. You know, they're not putting money there. They will both, vote, they will both be Democrat, yeah. uh, voting Democrat in three days' time.
0: I find it interesting that the Trump campaign, certainly from their recent... State visits and recent overtures seem to think that Nevada will be their, their path to picking up a Clinton state. But I would agree with you in saying that on the surface, I would think that Minnesota would be the first to fall. Um, but it's interesting that the Trump campaign seems to think differently. Ah,
1: And an interesting stat about I was reading about Nevada is that Nevada in Clark County. Now, Clark County is where Las Vegas is. And that will decide the election because Nevada's population overwhelmingly concentrated in Clark County itself. And the Republicans only hold a 500 vote lead in terms of in-person voting, 500. And that is not assuming the hundreds of mail ballots that haven't been counted yet. Mm -hmm. That is worrying if I was Republicans, if I was only leading by 500. And yes, they talked about the fact that, you know, if the Republicans are doing better by Hispanics, nevada be one of the states but as we discussed just now hispanics is such a catch-all term isn't it Mm -hmm. and although there might not be democratic enthusiasm for biden or maybe i suspect maybe hillary clinton ran a better spanish get out the vote campaign than one would have naturally thought considering how she performed maybe what do you think so too that maybe we 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 haven't considered this yet
0: yeah, I think maybe she she ran a better Hispanic get out the vote operation than we first thought, but definitely it seems at the expense of running a Midwest get out the vote campaign. So, oh, definitely. Um I don't think it particularly worked for her, but maybe maybe that's what happened. Yeah.
1: And I think as well like each president constructs coalitions differently and what has happened is that people have often fixated on the Obama coalition as a pathway to victory. I think what Biden is showing is that each person and each candidate has its own way to victory. And his victory might take them more through more white states, such as Georgia, which is why Georgia is lying ball at 50-50. Why, um, and, and through a different set of states than Barack Obama did. Maybe... There's also something which consider that his support group is very much different. He's able to attract more the white folk than Barack Obama ever did. So, he therefore, his resources will be, therefore, spent in different parts of a state rather than where Obama was, isn't it? Whereas Hillary Clinton was too fixated on creating the Obama coalition relative to what she could potentially create as candidate Clinton- Hillary.
0: Absolutely. And on that point, I think before we go on to talking about the two congress- two big congressional elections going on, is it time to make some presidential election predictions?
1: Oh, absolutely. Now, we're, we're doing this now and, we will sit, and we're recording this podcast. We're not going to change it before the 3rd of November. So I think the way we should do is, is that we'll, we'll obviously go through all the battleground states. But some states like South Carolina, obviously, will vote for Trump. But we'll be talking about the Senate in that sense. Yeah. Before we talk about the Senate and the presidential, I would like, given that our first episode was talking about the House... Here's a prediction for you. Do you think the Democrats will get a net gain of seats in the House? Yes. In which range? Are we talking 1 to 5? Five to, 5 to 10?
0: 5 to 10.
1: Unfortunately, I absolutely agree with 5 to 10. So we're going we're both being exactly the same basket there. Right, let's go through the presidential election battleground.
0: It's worth saying that for listeners we will be putting up map versions of these on our Twitter so that we can be publicly shamed if we're wrong.
1: <laughs> right. I suspect there will be a few battleground states which are going to be in agreement of. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I will go through those battleground states, which I suspect. And listeners should know we haven't talked to each other about our predictions not, these are no. entire hours. I have a feeling I know which one we agree on. So Michigan. Democrat. Same. Wisconsin. Democrat. Yep. Yeah. Pennsylvania
0: democrats
1: now i notice a slight hesitation there is there any reason why
0: only because of those first three i think that is the f- the, the most vulnerable midwest state from the biden campaign
1: i agree too and there's noticeable that both harris and biden are in pennsylvania today but yeah, like you but i
0: still think that their lead is just about enough to even if there's a polling error they will just about hang on
1: but isn't this worrying, though, because we're going to need, we're currently getting the na- nationwide Democrats at the seven to eight point lead. And to be us uncertain about Pennsylvania, when that lead comes down to two, I'll be a bit worried, won't you? Yeah, in the future want- elections.
0: and I know we talked a bit about the Supreme Court earlier, but I think the role of the judiciary in Pennsylvania will turn out to be very important because they're having a lot of issues with ballot dates about naked ballots about signatures matching I think we could have a lot of court battles going on over Pennsylvania
1: all right let's go to the more interesting ones right North Carolina
0: I think Biden will carry it
1: I think it'll be a narrow Biden victory Florida
0: I'm going to say Biden and I think you might disagree
1: yes I do disagree but I'm not sure about you, but it's a line ball at the moment, isn't yeah. it, Florida?
0: Yeah, oh, definitely,
1: yeah. I'm just worried by the fact that we've seen... We all remember 2018, and even then, if huge Democratic enthusiasts and Democrats underperformed the polls. Absolutely. And with them showing a one- to two-point lead, if you underperform that, you're lying line ball and potentially yeah. behind. And the Miami-Dade figures concern me. So yeah. that's why I think that even though the polls show it, Biden a hit, I might stick it in the Republican column. But that being said, though, if we, given that we are given away Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, and Pennsylvania to Democrats, it still gets them 270 Absolutely. anyway. Yeah. But this is just extra. So that's our first disagreement. Texas.
0: Whoa. Trump.
1: I agree. I think Trump will hold on.
0: However, I was so close to saying Biden because the early voting figures... I find surprising in a way that I think the polls could prove to be wrong. And if the early voting energy is with the Democrats, as some people widely assume, Texas could be very, very close.
1: I'll uh, give you a, the caveat of hope for the Democrats is that the 2018 midterm, Beto was trailing Ted Cruz by six points. On, he ended up losing by three So, potentially, but I do agree with you, it will take one more election to crack Texas. As
0: I said last week, I think Texas is a step too far this cycle. But if the early voting figures are anything to go by, I think this could be very close.
1: Very, very close. Now, two states are going to lump together because I suspect you and I both think the same. Iowa and Ohio.
0: I think both of them will go to Trump, but I think Iowa
1: will be closer. I agree with that analysis. I think Iowa will be closer. Gosh, there's not much to disagree. We've only disagreed on Florida. Right. That's largely the battleground states on the presidential Arizona. level. Oh, Arizona. Yes, I forgot about Arizona. I well, think Arizona will go to Biden. Exactly. I think Arizona will go to Biden. the Maine second
0: and Nebraska second?
1: Nebraska second will be Biden. Maine second. Ooh, that's a tough one. I think narrow Trump.
0: I think I have they to... will both go to Biden.
1: OK, so on main second on the House front, safe Democrat. Yes. Uh, Jared Gordon's cruising to re-election. Georgia. Now, I have to say Georgia. We'll save the best or forgotten the best for last. Oh, this is such a 50-50 race I at the moment, Georgia isn't it? I think Georgia
0: will go to Biden. I've called it. I've put it on the air. I think Georgia will be a Biden state.
1: I might agree with you. I think... Although that being said, I will not be surprised if it goes for Trump. But Georgia could be within 1% of either of them. The the problem with Georgia is, of course, the fact that the Republican governor has made and the Republican legislator made a systematic effort at trying to disenfranchise black voters, which is why I'm only a bit more hesitant in calling Georgia for Biden. Mm-hmm. So because of that, but I do think it's enough to get biden narrowly narrowly over the line but georgia would be line ball 50 50
0: yeah
1: and don't forget unlike the senate you do not need 50 percent to win the state one more thing before we move on to senate is that texas what's going to be in play as well is that the texas house of representatives will be in play as well the it's democrats need to gain exactly and the democrats will need to gain nine seats there which is not a lot so if the democrats gain nine seats it basically means the next redistricting in Texas will be very interesting because there, it will have one branch of government, which means that the districts are much more likely to be equal. And that will be, certainly benefit the Democrats housewise.
0: And it's likely to gain two electoral votes as well in the census.
1: Definitely as well. Right, Senate, shall we?
0: Yeah, so before we make some Senate predictions, I think there's a few things to discuss between when we recorded our Senate podcast and now, just before the Senate elections take place. Would you agree there's been a bit of a change in what the realistic reach states are for the Democrats and what this elusive 50-second seat might be?
1: Yes, I agree. I definitely agree. I think we were too optimistic about Lindsey Graham two weeks ago. I do not think he's going to be the fifty second seat. And I wonder how much that's because he's chaired the Judiciary Committee, bringing Amy Comey Barrett through the Senate, and that shored him out with the sceptical Republicans, as we discussed in the north of the state. Do you agree with my analysis?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think one thing that's changed quite dramatically, which I think is now the answer I would give to the 52nd state question, is between when we recorded our Senate podcast and now, Georgia has shot to being such a toss up. Now, I know there's the caveat of there potentially being two runoffs in January, and typically a party who w- wins the presidency will not go on to win runoff elections. But-
1: I disagree with that last statement, actually. I think it's the, the Republicans, even if Trump's reelected, will still get win the runoff seats because the fact that Republicans tend to turn out in a lower um, turnout environment, it tends right. to skew Republicans. The Democrats need particularly Ozov needs fifty percent plus on election day. Yeah. Maybe with Warnock, what's different is the fact that given he's a black candidate, he could black turnout tends to drop during midterms and non presidential elections. So maybe he could inspire the extra to get over either Doug Collins or Kelly Lofia. But Oslo certainly needs fifty percent on election night.
0: Would you agree that Georgia has climbed the rank in terms of likely Democrat gains?
1: Well, let's be careful. I do not think Warnock's seat will be the 52nd on election night. No, um, It'll be the Oslo seat. I'm The only thing that I would say that on paper it looks like it, but the Montana figures, given that they're already at 90% of early voting, will that benefit Steve Bullock? I do not know. And given that that race, you do, it's within one or two points, similar to Oslo, but doesn't have that 50% threshold, I wonder whether that could... Give him, bring him over the line and be elected senator rather than what's going to happen in Georgia.
0: Yeah, and it would feel like if that happened, we've come full circle because I think I would have talked about Montana being on the Democrats' path to 50 in a conversation we had six months ago.
1: Definitely. Um, so let's r- rattle through the Senate, the competitive Senate ones, starting the lone Democratic defense we talked about, Michigan with Gary Peters.
0: Yeah, I think the Democrats are feeling more confident about Michigan than they were a couple of weeks ago. There's been a lot of pretty reliable, good polling for the Democrats. It's tightened from what they thought it was going to be, but I think it's pretty safe.
1: Yes, I agree with you. I think Gary Peters. And the New York Times poll, which put out the 1% Peters lead, has reverted to tight and shown a more conventional 8-point lead. So I agree with you. I think um, Gary Peters will hold. Now let's go through the seats in which we'll get Democrats to 50 Yeah, one of them is Arizona, Mark Kelly against uh, Martha McSally.
0: Yeah, I think Mark Kelly will definitely be a senator by the end of this year.
1: Good. I think so too as well. Doug Jones, Alabama?
0: Yeah, I can't see Doug Jones pulling this out of the bag.
1: No, I don't either. So that brings the Democrats to 46, given the whole Michigan. So Arizona take Maine.
0: I think the Democrats will pick up Maine. I think Sarah Gideon will, will win that seat.
1: So that's 48. You agree? 49, I agree too. Um, because Maine will vote Democrat at a yeah. presidential level overall. So it will definitely be provide the Senate seat. I forgot about Colorado. That's going to be Democrat. Yeah,
0: John Hickenlooper will, will sail to victory there, I think.
1: Exactly. And I think that's why Corey Gartner voted for ACB as well. To be honest, Uh, I think
0: John Hickenlooper will outperform the margins that Gary Peters has in Michigan. I think that will be one of the biggest margins in terms of the supposed um, toss-ups or competitive districts. I think that will be one of the biggest.
1: I have to say, once again, the Democratic recruitment and shepherding their candidates through primary should be something that's applauded, really. They haven't, on the Senate side, made many bad decisions, haven't they? No, so that will bring the Democrats to 49 with Colorado, 50 North Carolina, yay or nay?
0: So one thing I want to say is I think that the North Carolina Senate seat will go the same way as the electoral votes. And because I said that Biden will get the electoral votes, I'm going to say that Cal Cunningham will win that seat.
1: So you, so let's say if Trump wins North Carolina, do you expect Tom Tillis to win? Yes. Okay, this is where I differ from you, because I think that Kyle Cunningham will win regardless of who wins the electoral vote. I'm a little less uncertain about who will win um, the electoral vote, but I'm a bit more confident that Kyle Cunningham will win um, his Senate seat, the, the Senate race mm-hmm. um, based on past form, as we discussed. And I don't think Tom Tillis has run a very good race. So that will be 50, Iowa 51.
0: If you'd have asked me this question two weeks ago, I would have reasonably confidently predicted that Greenfield would pick this up and it would be a democratic game. I am still going to air towards Greenfield narrowly edging this out. But it would not surprise me at all if Johnny Ernst manages to retain this seat.
1: I totally agree with you. And it's a bit like me with Georgia. It's a lineball call, yeah. isn't it? Um, and I'm, do you think Georgia's a lineball call, by the way?
0: I think it definitely is. I think if any Georgia seat is going to go to the Democrats, it will be Ossoff's seat. And I can see a world in which Ossoff wins it next Tuesday, because as we talked about a bit earlier, his polling numbers have been edging up narrowly, narrowly. The last poll had him on 49 percent. He may just tick over the 50 percent, but if he does, it will be very marginal. I can't see the Warnock seat going to Democrats because, as we explained, it's bound to go to a runoff and the Republicans will likely win that. Um, but I think the John Ossoff seat is very 50-50 in my eyes.
1: So as we discussed just now, I think it's a race between Montana and Georgia's Ossoff yeah. seat for 52. Let's go through. We've both admitted that I think South Carolina has gone away mm-hmm. uh, for the Democrats over the last two weeks. I'd like to bring up a few more Senate races which mm-hmm. we talked about briefly that are kind of on the reach so kansas
0: i think out of the next few states we're going to discuss the kansas alaska south carolina i think kansas will be the closest i,
1: I don't agree. think
0: barbara bollier will win but i think you could see a margin within low single digits
1: i think she would get within five points
0: yeah um on the record
1: yeah i know um, i'm not putting much on but i think she will be the closest i, I, I agree I she'll be to all agree. three yeah I think Kansas as well. Kansas City, the suburbs, are turning very blue at an alarming rate if I was a Republican. Um, Alaska.
0: Alaska, I think Dan Sullivan will hold on. But I think Al Gross will perform reasonably well. I think it will be within single digits. And I think he will be reasonably happy with his performance versus what it potentially could have been when we were talking about the race for the Senate two years ago.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think I think they might end up in the higher single digits. North yeah. Car- South Carolina.
0: However, one thing I will say about Alaska, it's an incredibly difficult state to poll, so mm. even the most reliable polling in Alaska comes with an enormous asterisk. So it could be that we're reading this state completely wrong, and Al gross manages to edge out an narrow victory. Um, I don't think that's going to happen, but it's worth stating that. Alaska polling is few and far between, and especially
1: reliable. Alaska polling, as well in Alaska as well, the reason why it's hard to poll is that it's not only rural and very difficult to get mail um, signal of all kinds or anything yeah. like that as well. There are a lot of Native Americans in the north yeah. of the state as well, which traditionally can be quite unpredictable voting bloc. For example, Don Young, who has been the who is the father of the dean of the House of Representatives, he has very strong support amongst the Native Americans, which you would think skews Democrat. And unlike the rest of the 50 other states as well, Alaska, the Republicans are still doing quite well in the Anchorage suburbs, which are holding out relatively well because if their support collapses there, they will be in big trouble with Alaska. Mm -hmm. Um, I suspect that's largely because the Anchorage suburbs host a lot of people who were in the oil and gas industry and that tends to favor the Republicans because of their strong support for the oil and gas industry. So that was Alaska. I agree with you. South Carolina.
0: So I'm going to go on the record and, and say that I think Jamie Harrison will be within five points, but I think Lindsey Graham
1: will win. I think as well. I don't think it'll be... I do think the variable will get closer than Jer- yeah. Jamie Harrison, as we discussed. Now, Texas. Senate.
0: Texas, I think, will be one of the most bizarre races when you look at it overall, because as I said, I think the electoral race might be quite close but I don't think the Senate race will be. So I think it'll be high single digits, actually.
1: Do you think as well that if you looked at the difference between David Perdue, who was running against John Oslo's seat, and John Conan, who's running in Texas, that you had sort of two quite conservatives but have taken very different lines in quite blue-trending states? So John Conan didn't say anything outrageous, was quite traditional in terms of his conservatism, whereas David Perdue has made outrageous statements regarding Kamala Harris. You know, he lengthened John Oswald's nose, which is clearly anti-Semitic. anti-Semitic. Whether that difference will cost is, is the reason why Kona is doing better.
0: Yes, and I think, I think one thing that's important is he's tried to increase his distance between Trump versus David Perdue. And I also think that one of the problems for the Democrat side is that John Ossoff is becoming a bigger name on the national stage. So external donations to the Ossoff campaign are reasonably high. Um, and MJ Hagar has just not quite managed to do that in this cycle.
1: I would say though, it's very interesting because both John Ossoff and MJ Hagar both lost house seats yeah. in John Ossoff in twenty seventeen and MJ Hagar in twenty eighteen. I think John Ossoff as candidates also very much improved compared to yeah. MJ Hagar. I saw his recent debate against uh, David Purdy. We absolutely slapped down uh, David Purdy and his priorities for Georgia. And I think that showed to me a real candidate growth that I don't think we saw from MJ Hagar. Um, no,
0: and I think, but I do think MJ Hagar has run quite an effective campaign and I think will prove to be a good model for candidate selection in the future because she's focused on. Um, her military past, her non-political past in terms of um, serving in, in office. So I think that will prove to be a useful pattern as we discussed a few weeks ago when we were talking about House candidates. But it'll certainly be very interesting.
1: Well, it's, it's been a long year. It's been a very weird long year, hasn't it? And it has we've been waiting for this for four years. I remember four years ago. Certainly, we, we, both, we both watched that election race with utter fascination and a certain amount of horror realization. And it, I can't quite believe we're finally in the final home stretch, can't you? It really is the final countdown.
0: It is. And our necks are now on the line. As I say, we'll be posting some maps on Twitter just so we can be publicly humiliated if we're greatly wrong.
1: Well, one more thing as well is that we will periodically be tweeting throughout the US election results, not only on that election result, because if it's closer, it will be several days and we'll be keeping a look on the Senate and the House. So keep a lookout for that.
0: Well, that is it for our latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. And I can't believe I'm about to say this, but join us again next week on the other side of the US election. We'll be discussing the results and, as always, bringing you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the globe. You can follow us on Twitter at at ballot underscore talk and you can leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast provider you listen to and tell your friends about us. But until then, see you then. See you next week, Churn.
1: See you very, very soon.
0: See you very, very soon.